Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. I would certainly be in favor of allowing states to use the bankruptcy route. It's to save some cities. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with Ezra Klein. Uh, we want to talk uh, later about sort of China's role in coronavirus and also in American politics. Uh, but first up, you know, speaking about politics, uh, we've had a, a number of sort of rounds of stimulus legislation, a potential fourth round coming. These are bipartisan deals, given the configuration in Congress and out of, of political power in, in Washington. And it naturally leads to the question of sort of who's getting the who's getting the better of, of the deal. And there's a certain uh, sentiment on the left that the Democrats are sort of getting rolled here. Um, and I am I'm coming into this totally blind, Ezra. You said you wanted to talk about this, but I actually have no idea what you think. <laughs> It'll be a surprise to us all. So yeah, usually we try to make these things, you know, a kind of kind of fake, uh, spontaneous. Uh, but this is this is the real deal. I don't know what's coming. So, so I've been reporting on this because I, I, I've been getting this question a lot, and I feel this really catalyzed. in, I guess it was stimulus bill three point five, where the money for testing and the administration creating a national plan on testing was described as a win and a concession for Democrats. Meanwhile, the bill did not include state and local aid. It did not include all kinds of things that were like beyond the baseline things the Democrats wanted. Um, the Center on Budget and Policy Party said it wasn't enough even as an interim measure. And so there's this feeling that if Democrats are taking <laughs> testing money as a concession, when that's just like what we need to be doing anyway, what is happening here? And so I've been reporting a bit on this. And one reason I'm interested in it is it reveals a dynamic at the heart of this thing that I think is very unusual. So the normal way you would think about this working is that the party in power, the party that controls the White House, has the political responsibility for governing the country. If the country is poorly governed, they are going to be blamed. And so they are going to be the party that wants to do all the things you kind of have to do no matter what. They're going to be the party that wants to get enough money to support the economy, that wants to do testing so you can reopen the economy, all of that thing is, the Trump administration hasn't actually wanted any of that. Their approach to this has been that it is a state and local problem. They don't want to be responsible for testing. They don't want to be responsible for saving the economy. They don't want to be seen as the people in charge. And so there's a strange dynamic that has emerged where Democrats are acting as the governing party from the minority. 
instead of their leverage being that the administration wants to do all this stuff and they either think the stuff is bad and they can block it or they think the stuff is okay, but they want to add their specific particularistic priorities to it. What they're actually doing is from the minority insisting the Trump administration takes money they don't want and authority they don't want over the crisis. And that has put them in a funny position where it's almost like what they were doing in the Obama administration, where Democrats are getting like a win when the bill is basically like doing what it should do, you know, or at least 45 percent of what it should do, as opposed to acting like a traditional minority party where they are making somewhat unreasonable demands and getting a win when they either like destroy the majority party's ability to govern or they get their unreasonable demands um, inserted into the bill. And that has been a frustration to liberals on the outside who want to who who like want to see the aggression from Democrats that they envied Mitch McConnell having in the Obama years. But on the other hand, I've been talking to a lot of Senate and House Democrats who who feel very strongly and I think understandably and, and, and morally correctly that they do not want to use the suffering as a country as leverage, telling somebody that their grandmother died or their business closed because they're trying to get one over on Mitch McConnell doesn't feel like what they got into politics to do. Right. I mean, I do think there's also the, the question in this of like, there's disagreement underlying about the merits of the payroll protection plan, right? The, the, the PPP bill, uh, where money goes to small businesses. Um, and also, frankly, disagreement about the merits of, of the larger business component, right? Where a number of sort of left-wing writers, Twitter personalities, et cetera, have been very hostile to this sort of core business support program. And, and they portray that as like the Republican Party win. And they are sort of asking, well, what did Democrats get in exchange for this? But as far as I can tell, talking to actual Democrats in Congress, they themselves don't see it that way, right? Like they're not reluctant to provide this second batch of of PPP funding. So that creates a disagreement about what the bargaining framework actually is here at all, right? If, if you think of that business stuff as like, well, that's what Republicans wanted. And so then where's the Democrat wins? Like, where's the Postal Service bailout? Where's the, the, the whatever else? Then it does look like a very one-sided bargain. But actually, like the Trump administration has not pushed hard for what I would think would be Republican ideas that Democrats would have a serious problem with. Right. They have not said, let's make uh, full expensing of investments uh, permanently deductible. They have not said, you know, let's cut the, the capital gains tax rate. They, they haven't put those kind of asks on the table where Democrats might then be like, whoa, hold your horses there. You know, if you want that, you're going to have to give us something. Instead, Democrats just don't object to these business support measures. So the criticism could be, well, they should object, or the criticism could be, well, they should pretend to object to sort of gain strategic leverage. Uh, But either way, I I think the, the real situation is that these bills look like to Democrats, like they are getting minor wins for their side in exchange for doing things that they think are totally good ideas. Yeah, 100%. So you're totally right that that is another strain of criticism. I, I haven't focused as much on that one just because, as you say, it isn't one that virtually like any elected Democrat agrees with. Like they don't like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren voted for this bill. And so they're like, there's some what I would call sort of anti corporate. 
I don't even know if you'd call some of these folks progressives at this point, given like where they <laughs> seem to me to be trending. Um, but nevertheless, the there is an anti-corporate dimension um, to, to criticism. We're just like to be giving this money to big businesses, to give it to small businesses, like it's all a total disaster. But just that's not broadly believed, including by the people who represent the left on this. Like I have a interview coming out on on the uh, EK show on Monday with Pramila Jayapal, who's the congresswoman from Washington. She's a co-chair of the House Progressive Caucus. And uh, it's a great interview. Actually, actually, I really recommend people listen to it. But when you talk to her about what she wishes was in the bill, like she's not saying like, oh, the problem is we're giving money to businesses. Like, like everybody believes if because they are in their own districts. I want to note, by the way, like the structure of their jobs, like they are in their districts doing usually now like digital town halls. And what they hear from person after person after person is not like businesses, right? It's my business. It's like my family worked forever to create this like organization. It's like I work for this larger employer and they've been good to me, but now like nobody is buying our product and like we need help. And so when you're being confronted with the human suffering that comes like through the mechanism of businesses closing, keeping businesses from closing doesn't seem like that bad of an idea. Now, one thing that I think Democrats have done poorly is create a metric of success that their own side can understand. And so actually Jayapal is a good example um, or, or, or offers some good, I think, uh, bills in this direction. So she's got two bills right now that I think are worth discussing, which is one, this Paycheck Guarantee Act, which would basically guarantee payroll up to $100,000 a year for um, like any business that is like having to close down or lose a lot of revenue due to COVID-19. And you can prorate it if you've lost 30% of your revenue and so on. But it's a way of very directly supporting payroll, which I, I do think would be a somewhat more um, progressive and also ambitious way of, of supporting the jobs in these programs. Um, but the other thing that I thought is really interesting is that she has this Medicare crisis bill, which is basically it opens Medicare or a Medicare-like program up to anybody who's losing health insurance or just needs health insurance because of the crisis. And that's like much more in the direction of going towards a, a Medicare for all or Medicare for more program than simply expanding COBRA. And so one thing you could really imagine is that Democrats begin describing either of these bills, in particular the Medicare crisis bill, as like this is what it would mean to win, right? You begin to like build organizing around like this one idea. So there's a lot going on in these broader bills, which are packed with all kinds of things from state and local and hospital aid to testing money to business bailouts to everything. But like this thing, like hits like traditional democratic pressure points. Democrats have been wanting to expand access to Medicare. This is a popular idea and it could just become the thing that Democrats say like, yes, the next bill will need to have this in it and we're going to go to the mat over that and like we will just like fight until this is won. Um, and Democrats have not been willing to do something like that. They have not been willing to say that like, this is going to be the marker for us of success. We are going to get our people invested in this. And then like, we are not going to let the bill pass until it includes this because we believe the public is on our side about it. And so when you don't like set a metric for success, it is hard to declare success. Meanwhile, like the Trump administration is basically asking for not literally nothing, but but very little. But then they take credit for the things Democrats fight to get into the bill, like, say, the the stimulus checks. To me, though, the the real underlying dynamic here, like if you want to understand what's happening, is that the Trump administration has not made enough unreasonable asks. You know what I mean? Like in a, like in a weird way that like if they came and they were like, we want a trillion dollars in regressive tax cuts, Democrats would be like, fuck no. 
And then the Trump administration could say, no, 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 but we really want those regressive tax cuts. And then Democrats could come with like a really big ask of their own. And like, then you could have a deal, like a deal where you level up. But what's happened here the whole time is the Trump administration has just been kind of like, every once in a while, the president will tweet that there should be a payroll tax cut or maybe some kind of stimulus bill. But their actual negotiation just seems to be Nancy Pelosi has like a bajillion things that she would like to do. And Steve Mnuchin rejects most of them. And they eventually settle on what from Pelosi's list is acceptable to Mnuchin. And then Senate Republicans kind of grumble a little and and go along with it. So in that sense, it's like 100% wins for Democrats, I think. It's just not, it's not like a win for America to have the president of the United States being so passive about everything. Like he, he should come up with something and then Democrats would get more leverage, but also you could get more done. The other thing I wanted to say is that the unemployment insurance expansion is I think a much bigger deal and much more much more left-wing in its implications. And it's a sort of, the way this came about, I guess Michael Bennett and Ron Wyden were the main actors in, in putting it together. And those are not like even close to being the most left-wing members of the Senate Democratic Caucus. And they are not like wired into left-wing chit-chat spaces and stuff like that. So it never quite got, play as like, this is a really big deal. But but the way this works is that people get their normal unemployment insurance plus $600 a week. And the scope of people who are eligible for unemployment insurance uh, widens a lot. And I don't think a lot of people have run the math on this, but I, I checked it yesterday. And the majority of full-time workers in America get more money under enhanced unemployment insurance than they do at their current jobs. That doesn't mean like, well, you're better off losing your job because unemployment insurance expires and also people just don't like being unemployed. But it means that this program has gone from being um, unusually stingy, I think, by global unemployment insurance standards to super duper duper generous. I mean, it replaces more than 100% of wages in most cases and with a very progressive targeting. So it's like the lower income a person you are, the better a deal this is for you. And it's like, if I have a criticism of this, if anything, it's that it's like too much of a left wing success story. It's like it's like all in on income redistribution at a moment when there's like a lot of other problems in the world. Uh, but like that's that's the win. If you would propose that in a normal time, like just turn the basic logic of the link between employment and income totally upside down, people would be like, "That's crazy. You're a communist." But we did it with you know a unanimous Senate vote. I think one reason that policy, I agree with everything you say on it. I think one reason it has not gotten the credit it deserves is in addition to not coming forward in a way where people organized around it. And it was like like Bernie Sanders, like crazy idea that he forced into the mainstream. It also has been layered on top of an unemployment insurance structure that is very badly designed for this kind of unbelievable generational crisis in the states. And so a lot of people aren't getting it. And so the yes. thing people are hearing about unemployment insurance is that 
the websites are crashing, people are applying and they're not getting it, they're not seeing the check yet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, which is all 100% true and a real problem. But the problem in implementation there, I think, has overwhelmed the like macro policy change it was made, which, as you say, was like actually an extraordinary win. And, you know, um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's uh, policy director, Dan Riffle, like said, like the most progressive thing, like Congress has done probably in decades. Like it's a very big deal. But again, this goes a little bit to my thing about I think there is a perception Democrats have that they're always losing. And also because a lot of what they're fighting for is just what the Trump administration should want anyway. So Democrats like the idea that Mitch McConnell is out there saying states should just go bankrupt is wild, right? It's totally ridiculous. And it's totally also a disaster for Republicans because like they are in charge. And if states begin like cutting education left, right, and center, like they're going to be in trouble. Um, I was talking to Brian Schatz, the senator from Hawaii about this, and he had this very funny line to me. He said, everybody thinks now that everything Mitch McConnell does or says is diabolically strategic, but sometimes it's just diabolical. Like there's no strategy here. It's just something he said. And like, I think this is true about a lot of the way Republicans have been dealing with this. It's been very reactive, like sometimes they're falling back on criticism of Democrats, sometimes they're falling back on conservative ideology. But because they have not had an agenda they want to pass, there's like nothing, there's not really been something for Democrats to negotiate against. Democrats are simply trying to get Republicans to agree to the things that you would like assume you'd want. And so I think the other thing that comes in here is that people are worried that Democrats are giving Republicans things they're going to take credit for. And then like, even if say Joe Biden or a Democrat wins in, in November, then of course, like Republicans are going to turn around and give Democrats none of this cooperation and like try to crash the economy on them. And I, I don't think that's wrong, by the way. Yeah. I mean, for me going back, I mean, I had always thought that the thing Democrats should insist on is the creation of automatic stabilizers as part of this to say, yeah, look, we can do whatever, but the triggers are going to be objective economic triggers, not, you know, dribs and drabs so that the bipartisanship doesn't evaporate in, in 2021. Um, you know, one note on, on McConnell and the question of diabolicity is that here it's always, it's always hard to know because Oftentimes, what I think progressives want is for Democratic Party politicians to be more dishonest, uh, to sort of improve their bargaining leverage, right? That if Democrats had said and professed to believe that supporting businesses was a really tough ask for them, and like, oh man, I don't know, like a big bailout to corporate America. How how am I gonna how am I gonna do that? We we can't agree. These companies all messed it up. And and Elizabeth Warren, I think, started on this bluff, talking about stock buybacks and stuff like that. And then you could create a situation in which there was a lot of conditionality on the assistance. Like you can get this money from the Fed, but you need to start paying your workers more or, or something like that. Democrats ultimately didn't do that, I think, because it's challenging for the Democratic Party to communicate internally in the way you would need to, to sort of bluff like that. Whereas McConnell on state aid, you know, he started out by saying like, no, it's totally unacceptable. These states should just file for bankruptcy. To now softening his position where it seems like maybe he's willing to do state aid, but there's going to have to be some sticks attached to create some kind of state level budgetary reforms. And I don't know how that's going to work out for him in, in the end. But being 
willing to sort of stand up there and like take shit from people for being unreasonable does strengthen your your position tactically. And I'm just not sure that the Democrats are set up to do that or that it would be wise to do that. I mean, something progressives complain about all the time is that Republicans do a poor job of um, safeguarding the actual economic interests of their constituents. And that's sort of two sides of the same coin of having more tactical flexibility about bluffing is when your, you know, external communication is not honest, uh, that can benefit like a, a wide array of stakeholders who aren't always the people you you really want to help. So I'm, I'm just not, I'm not as in love with the idea that like more bargaining strength is, is the key to everything. Let's take a break here and come back and talk a bit about what actually is politically wise. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So something I think is relevant in this conversation is that if you turned on Twitter day to day, you would think that what's happening is like Joe Biden is way behind in the polls. Donald Trump is like using his press conferences to like become unbelievably popular and like the face of the coronavirus response. And like Democrats are screwing all this up again because like the entire emotional tenor of all Democratic discussion is like panic and infighting always. But if you actually look objectively at the political scene right now, 
it is an unmitigated disaster for Republicans. So I, I've been working on this with uh, Roger Karma over at Vox, and we talked with Morning Consult to get polling for other world leaders and um, governors. And something you see when you actually compare what is going on with Donald Trump to what is happening to other leaders in similar positions in the crisis is that he is just not getting the bump you see everybody else getting. It's very common right now to see double-digit bumps. So Emmanuel Macron in France, who's very unpopular, has had a 10-point bump during coronavirus. Angela Merkel, 14. Justin Trudeau, 16. Scott Morrison on Australia, 25. Boris Johnson in the UK, 18. And a lot of these players did not have good initial responses. Like Boris Johnson like, really screwed this up at the beginning. Um, Trump has had a three-point bump like three points. So all these other people are getting somewhere between 10 and 20 or 10 and 25, in fact, and Trump is up three points. And then if you compare Trump to governors in New Mexico, Grisham's up 15 points. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan is up 21 points. Kevin Stitt in Oklahoma is up nine points. Tom Wolf in Pennsylvania up 12. Tony Evers in Wisconsin up 17. Uh, Roy Cooper in North Carolina up 23. Phil Murphy in New Jersey up 26. Again, like in this poll, Trump up for. And so there is a real way in which what Trump is doing here is not working. Joe Biden is going, uh, seems to just be rising in the polls, even though people feel like they're not seeing enough of him. He's beating Trump nationally, beating him in battlegrounds. I, last I looked, Biden is up about six points as a challenger in national polling. At this point in 2012, Obama as the incumbent was up 3.5 points over Romney. So like Trump is objectively doing quite bad. He's not getting the bump you see um, of other leaders in sort of similar context. And then like this is still quite early in the economic damage we're going to see, right? Like people have not been dealing with this for very long. And we know that sort of rally around the flag effects to the extent you get them, they dissipate. So Trump is not getting like the bump that we think he will like be spending down for a while already. And things are just getting worse and worse and worse. And in many ways, he is getting more and more flailing. So there is this way in which I think that there's like a background belief that Democrats are somehow fucking this up politically. But like what I actually see happening is Trump is screwing this up both substantively and politically. And like in the background, like Democrats are doing what seems to be working for other leaders and, and other politicians in other places, which is like just try to project a kind of competence and adult in the room approach to this and voters who are scared right now will reward you. Yeah. I mean, you know, Twitter is, is such a complicated place. And, you know, as we all know, in a, in a realm of cliches, you know, it's, it's, it's not real life. Uh, but Joe Biden has particularly sort of, uh, up the ante on that because in the Democratic primary, there was such a heavy, heavy, heavy uh, age skew to things, right? And like so few people who were of tweeting age were like fans of Biden and Biden's approach, right? But the median age in the electorate is in the high 50s. And you just sort of don't have that. You know, I feel like in digital media terms, like really like an old man, you know, like I'm way older than most of our colleagues at Vox. I'm like telling people war stories about the 2004 campaign and, and stuff like that. But I'm much younger than the average voter in America. And so Biden has this, you know, reservoir of support, which we saw in the primary and we see again at general election polling that is 
largely invisible in the discourse, consisting of older working class Democrats, a lot of whom are African American, but some of whom are white or, or Latino, something like that. But I- exactly the kind of people who you don't like hear from a lot. So instead, there's this kind of echo chamber where sometimes people are saying, well, we should be hearing more from Biden. But sometimes what they're really saying is like they don't like Joe Biden and, you know, don't enjoy tuning in to the content he's making or the the things that he's saying. And it, it becomes a very kind of confused dynamic. But But I agree with you that, you know, on one level, right, for Democrats to change their strategy, they would have to believe that the strategy isn't working. And right now, what congressional Democrats think they're doing is being responsible rather than engaging in brinksmanship and also being up in the polls. So, like, why would you abandon that approach in favor of a substantively risky one who is supposed to help you politically when actually you're you're winning right now? Because uh, the, the generic congressional ballot has also gone from it was like plus five Democrats to now it's almost plus eight. Um, and they they just like they seem to be doing well. And, you know, wh- why are they going to change? I think it's a good place to to take another break. And then you want to talk about China? Yeah, let's do it. Hi, we're visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees. We don't have them. Annual contracts. Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line. Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just twenty five dollars a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. Twenty five a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Obviously, China is a, is a real country and foreign policy is a real thing. But the Trump team has also telegraphed incredibly heavily. And they're, the greatest thing, actually, about Donald Trump is that he doesn't believe in subtlety or like any kind of finesse. If his plan is to get out of the coronavirus political hole by pointing fingers at China and positioning himself as the tough on China candidate, his team will just like say that to newspapers and then go do it. And that is what they are doing, they are saying uh, that this is all China's 
fault. They have the intelligence community trying to find evidence that it was actually a lab accident, but they have this litany of complaints about China separate from the lab thing. And then this whole story that Joe Biden is soft on China, that Hunter Biden had some business dealings with the Chinese government, that the the Chinese uh, are pulling for Biden and they want to rig the election for him, and that that's sort of the whole real issue here. And they're joined in that then by some more aggressive foreign policy hawks like Tom Cotton uh, in the Senate, who, you know, really see this as the opportunity to get like a, a new Cold War going. And what's been interesting is that the Biden campaign has not hesitated to just sort of up the ante on that and say, yeah, like China is terrible and Donald Trump is a China apologist. And they put together this video with like all the clips of Trump talking about how much he loves his friend, President Xi, and what a great job they're doing with coronavirus and how he loves the Chinese and and China is amazing. So I guess everybody agrees China is terrible. I think this is all pretty dangerous. You know, look, campaigns are campaigns, and I'm not shocked to see the Biden campaign doing some China bashing. But let's take the Wuhan lab thing seriously for like just a minute here, okay? I will say to start this off, like, I do not believe coronavirus was created in a lab in Wuhan. The people, the scientists who uh, mapped the genome of coronavirus don't believe is created in a lab in Wuhan. Like, this is just like a thing going around. But like, let's imagine for a minute it was created in a lab in Wuhan. What people are saying would have happened there is something called a gain of function experiment. So it's constantly the case that like bio labs are messing around with viruses to see what they will do and then to try to figure out like how you can counteract that. So very famously, um, there's a virus that is incredibly lethal called H5N5, which this Dutch um, doctor, scientist, something, it it has a 60% lethality rate, but it can't spread from human to human. But he passed it through 10 different ferrets and at the end of that managed to create a version that could spread between humans and like announced that and explained how he did it. And like it set off this huge global furor over like, is that an experiment you should be doing like at all? Because like, what if that escaped or you taught some like, you know, like um, terrorist group how to do it? And then similarly, even at very high security biolabs, we have had experiences where things have escaped. Like for in- like two, I'll just note in Britain, they have, I think it was like hoof and mouth disease, which was like a huge outbreak for a while. And then there was another one a couple years later, and it turned out that it had come out of a British lab that was experimenting on the virus, and it had leaked through a pipe. And then similarly, just a couple of years ago, there is an American biosecurity, uh, like army base kind of thing. And they were sending out deactivated anthrax spores to 192 labs around the world um, because like, they have the capacity to make them. Um, so those labs could uh, experiment on them, except they accidentally sent out live anthrax spores to 192 labs in a b- bunch of different countries around the world. So whoops. Here's the point. Lab accidents do happen. Again, I don't think this was one of them. But if it was, what you want in order to manage that is that countries are operating with each other in like a like a position of sort of trust and mutual goodwill where like people are quickly honest. They call on each other for help. Um, Similarly, if just something is coming up naturally, like you want that like capacity to cooperate. And China is by no means a good actor in this. They clearly um, played this down and tried to suppress it for a couple of weeks and cost the cost the world a couple of weeks. And then they did explain what was going on and go into quarantine and then like give the world a month. And like we wasted that time, too. But nevertheless, like if we had a better relationship with China, if they felt 
safer, like in their relationship with the U.S., um, which like was not how Donald Trump has been managing that relationship. Is it possible that like they would have told us what was going on faster? Like, I actually don't know. This is something that Senator Chris Murphy posed as hypothetical, and he says he doesn't know the answer either. But even if you think this is all China's fault, like the way to handle this, where we need both global public health cooperation now and global economic cooperation to get out of this, and in the future, you need countries like cooperating on what could potentially be embarrassing or threatening, like revelations about what is going on in, in public health in their countries is to create an atmosphere where people are willing to say this stuff and simply ratcheting up the tensions endlessly to deal with your domestic political problems. It, it simply it does create a more dangerous world, right? Like I get the political incentives, but it creates a more dangerous world for everyone. The main thing I would say about this is that the Trump people, the and not just Trump, actually, but the the sort of more thoughtful China hawks uh, working behind the scenes on this, they don't appear to me to have any actual policy, you know, that they want to push, right? There was a kind of a, a fork in the road, I think, almost 20 years ago when China was a lot poorer than it is today. And the United States was not that much poorer than it is today because this has not been a great 20 years in, in the American economy when you know, some people, a lot of uh, neocon uh, foreign policy hawks really wanted the United States to ratchet up anti-Chinese activities, to provide very robust military support to Taiwan, to really object to the incorporation of Hong Kong into the Chinese authoritarian system. People used to talk a lot about freeing Tibet. Uh, there were real questions about should we establish permanent normal trade relations with Taiwan, uh, with China rather. and. We didn't do those things. You know, it, instead, what we did was invade Iraq and Afghanistan and then sort of Syria and then sort of Iraq again and then sort of Syria again and then maybe continuing Afghanistan. And we're now just sort of behind the, behind the curve, I think, in terms of a lot of the traditional China hawk type solutions. So to a striking extent, right? Like the big policy suggestion from Tom Cotton has been, well, we should call this virus Wuhan virus. Because if we call the Chinese government names, they'll feel really sad about it. Or then he floated the other day the idea that well, we shouldn't allow Chinese technical students to come here to the United States because then they turn back to China and bring that knowledge home. But people looked at the numbers and that's not true. Like most Chinese students who come here stay here uh, because America's, you know, a good country to, I mean, people have been coming to America for like fucking hundreds of years to do things. Um, and it's always been the strength of America. And and the nationalists like Cotton, who want to restrict immigration to the United States, you know, you can accomplish a lot of things by restricting immigration, uh, but you're not going to make the United States more powerful than China that way, right? I mean, there's a like New Zealand seems like a nice country. Uh, they've really got this COVID 19 thing licked. Um, but because nobody lives there, it's like a, it's a small, rinky dink country. Uh, America's a big deal. And there's no vision here. And I, and I think that like just being assholes to another major government while not having any kind of like plan to get the upper hand on them or something that we want or something that we want to do is very unwise, you know, because if we don't actually have anything we can do about China, then we have to deal with them. 
Well, and there, I, I do want to note there have been some other policies that have been coming forward in the past couple of days. So there's one to take away sovereign immunity from China, um, to let uh, American citizens sue China for what coronavirus has done to them in international uh-huh. courts, which is like one of the dumber ideas I've ever heard. There's another that maybe we're not going to pay debts to China, which like given how many treasury bonds China owns and if they began dumping them on the world markets, like what would happen to interest? Like it's just a total disastrous idea. We are now way too interwoven um, with China to for, for these kinds of projects to actually work out. And then the other thing on top of what you were just saying, Matt, is that if what you wanted to do was isolate China and begin to try to like put them more in a box, some kind of quasi-containment strategy, which I don't think you can do. China's like not containable in that way anymore. But what you would also be wanting to do then is really aggressively like building your relationships with your, with our allies, right? You'd really want the America to be respected on the world stage, to be beloved by the people we work with, right? Germany and America have a great relationship. The UK and America have a great relationship, like to have done something like the TPP, which, you know, when you would talk to the Obama administration was all in their head about uh, asserting economic leadership in that region and like building a counterweight to China. There'd be all these things where you'd be you'd be doing on other fronts, right? Like if you're going to be tough and antagonistic with China, you need to be actually bending over backwards to make other countries want to work with you and support you in that. And of course, none of these people are doing that either. They're alienating all of our traditional allies so that it's like it is a weakened um, sort of pathetic America, like throwing these rhetorical lightning bolts at China. And it's just not doing that much. And it makes us look weak because we can't win that fight Uh, in part because as you point out, there really is nothing to win, but also in part because like the thing that actually makes us strong, which is not just like ourselves, but the alliances and trusts the world has in us are are being degraded at the same time. Well, and actually so much of Trump's uh, critique of U.S. foreign policy has been exactly that, right? Has been to say, look, this sort of global alliance system that we built during the Cold War against the Soviet Union involves the United States playing the role of sucker in all these relationships, which I think is not 100% false, right? Like the, the way NATO works, the way the U.S.-Japan alliance works, the way the U.S.-South Korea alliance works is that in, in both cases, we do give more than we get. And the reason we have all these alliances that are structured that way, though, is that having a global alliance network advanced a key American foreign policy priority, which was containing and defeating the Soviet Union, whereas like Portugal on its own sort of doesn't care about something like that. So we have all these asymmetrical deals, but we're the the hub of a hub-and-spoke alliance system. And Trump has been trying to take all that apart. But if you are serious about some kind of bilateral international confrontation with with China, that's what you would have to do. Um, Just like this idea that, you know, we're going to sue, we're going to say, oh, my grandpa died in coronavirus, so I'm going to sue the Chinese government. Like, that's stupid. You know, that that, that does pass the, the, the laugh test. I, I would also say, you know, some of what I've read about this is just like, oh, well, you know, the, the Chinese have a lot of irresponsible practices around uh, how they handle biohazards. So, so this is all their fault. Uh, they really do seem to have a lot of irresponsible practices. I think the uh, video our uh, video team put together before this happened about the Chinese wet markets really opened my eyes. But I, I also read um, th- this guy Toby Ord's book recently about existential risk. Yeah, he's been on the he was on the Ezra Pancho the other day. 
people should listen. Well, there you go. He mentioned offhand this incident that I then looked into by uh, Googling. And so in 2018, an American pharmaceutical company funded a small research team at the University of Alberta. And what they did was they took horsepox DNA samples that they ordered online, and then using uh, published uh, prints of the smallpox DNA, they assembled a smallpox virus in a lab, and then they demonstrated that their smallpox virus could reproduce. And thankfully, nothing terrible happened. But if that experiment had gone wrong, at least as I understand it, hundreds of millions of people could have died. And there's this article in Science about it. And there's like all these other researchers they're quoting. They're like, yeah, I don't know why somebody would do that. Like, there's no legitimate scientific purpose for this. I really wish they hadn't published a paper about this because now all kinds of people, terrorists, anyone can look this up and be like, here's a blueprint to make a deadly bioweapon. And I don't know, like this just happened without any, I certainly don't remember it happening in 2018. And it was both, I think, grossly irresponsible of the American American and Canadian governments to let this happen. But I also think it would be really wrong to suggest that Donald Trump and Justin Trudeau or members of the United States Congress were like culpable for this in any kind of specific way. Like it's just somehow the interaction of free speech and the scientific process and how the horsepox happens to function allowed this to play out in in a weird way. And it's it's actually like very bad. Like the world really needs some uh, discussions in a serious way about what we're doing here um, as, as genetic research gets gets more and more advanced. Uh, because like this, I, I don't want to be too dramatic, but like, I, I don't think it's wrong to say that this COVID-19 pandemic, this is like the worst thing that has happened in our lives possibly for quite a bit longer than that. And it's not even like the worst pandemic one could imagine. And as much as we're still scrambling around to try to cope with this, like we're not doing anything to address the underlying vulnerabilities, uh, which are scary. I mean, they're terrifying. Like this is horrible and it could be so much worse. So in Ord's book, and I do recommend people, I, I just had him on the AK show about three weeks ago. And it's a, he's a really, really thoughtful guy on these issues, and we talk about them a lot. Something that he talks about that I found really helpful, because he's focused on existential risk, right? Things that could kill off all of humanity or all of human civilization. So if you imagine something that could kill like 200 million people, like that is not the thing he is concerned about here. So one of the questions he talks about in the book that I find really helpful, and I'm actually writing a piece about this in Trump and trying to make this work right now, is this idea of risk correlation. So when you're worried about these kinds of risks, you're worried about things like nuclear weapons, um, runaway climate change, it sets off a feedback loop that you can't get back under control. You're worried about bioengineered pandemics or certain kinds of natural pandemics. You're worried, in, in his case, very much about like killer AI, like da 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 like all these things people have heard. Okay, so he asks this question, which I thought was a really good question, which is, are there things that make all of these risks correlate up or down? So is there something that would make the risk of like both nuclear war and bioengineered pandemics and runaway climate change go up at the same time? And he says, yeah, like think about a great power war. If you knew that the U.S. and China were going to go to war in the next 30 years, wouldn't you think it is likelier that there's a nuclear exchange, there's a bioweapon unleashed and or that the world is not able to get enough international cooperation to, to stop climate change. And something that emerges out of that is that the principle here is that a lot of what we need to do 
as humanity develops the capacity to destroy itself in all kinds of different ways and then keeps building the power to do that, right? Like this capacity, which we didn't have 50 years ago at nearly the scale to like easily engineer bioweapons. What you need to do in that world is almost all international cooperation, right? Everything we're talking about requires like very complex structures of international cooperation, which we've done to some degree in the nuclear weapons space, but much less in some of these other ones and not at all in some of the emergent ones. And so that's where it becomes really important and really tricky because like you can't say that we can't say anything bad about China. They do terrible things all the time. Like look at the Uyghurs and also look at the secrecy at the beginning of this. On the other hand, to needlessly antagonize or even more to just see anything good happening to China as literally bad for us, to see it as zero sum, to create a world where cooperation is basically impossible means that you're going to like drive all these risks higher. And like that is like my concern about Donald Trump just broadly, that he has like a risk correlation problem, like he's a risk factor for all kinds of bad things where he's taking a bunch of uncorrelated risks and making them all worse. I mean, this one with China is just a great example. Like the pandemic risk pays off in this horrifying way. So now we're living through this coronavirus nightmare. And he decides to choose on the other end of that to increase the risk of conflict with China. And like for what? Because like he can't figure out another political pathway forward. It's like it's all very reckless. But in terms of like how we should think about it as voters and, and analysts, like there's a lot of bad shit that can happen in the world. We are seeing some of it now, but there is worse shit than this by far. And like the answer to all of that is like we need global cooperation to deal with these problems because they can start anywhere and they require people all doing things at the same time and being honest with each other to stop them. And if we don't create a world conducive to global cooperation, like our children, our grandchildren will be living through worse than this. This is, a, I think, you know, a really profound sort of problem of of politics as, as well as as policy, though, because, you know, one of the things that I think really comes out if you try to understand, like, what underlies a lot of the educational polarization and other things like that that we've seen in the American electorate, and it's that more highly educated people are much more likely to see the world as full of positive sum type interactions. And more working class people, you know, across like racial and, and identity divides are just more inclined to see zero-sum type conflicts. And it's challenging. Traditionally, what the United States and most other countries did was had a completely separate like elite track of foreign policy in which like the mandarins of the universe understood the value of international cooperation and it was just sort of insulated from the the hurly burly of of politics you know this is where the whole politics stops at the water's edge thing comes from the idea of the best and the brightest of a foreign policy establishment things like that but as the group of educated people has gotten bigger right they, we have become more politically potent, particularly inside the Democratic Party, and more aligned with one party. So now, like the the idea of cooperativeness is itself something that's in the debate politically, and where the numbers are not on the side of the pro cooperation type people. And you know, I I think you did see that in the in the 2016 campaign that like Trump wielded to great advantage the idea that the way you could tell that he was on your side as an American worker is that he was against this deracinated global elite that was selling America out 
to foreigners, lot Asians, uh, but maybe other foreigners. And he very consistently presses that in a variety of fronts, right? On, on NATO, on human rights, this kind of like, what's in it for us? kind of thing. And it's not, it like doesn't speak to me politically and it doesn't speak to like the people I know. And it, it, it's the kind of thing that leads like Republicans who are foreign policy professional people to not like Donald Trump, but it's very potent. I mean, John Kerry, you know, who did much better than Hillary Clinton with white working class voters. He had this line about, we shouldn't be opening firehouses in Baghdad while we close them in Boston. And, and, uh, it drove like everybody in my office at the American Prospect insane that he would say this because it was like such a misportrayal of the actual stakes in the Iraq war. Uh, but like all indications are that like that was a really good that was a really good line for him that like a good way to oppose the war was to suggest that Iraqis were getting some kind of sweetheart deal that was shortchanging American firefighters, which like, you know, we wanted to do takes about like, the rule-based international order and stuff like that. And people didn't want to, didn't want to hear it. So from a narrow electoral point of view, I feel like Biden has sort of done the right thing here by, you know, leaning into the punch and pointing out all the ways in which Trump was like so obsessed with his dumb soybean deal that he kind of like missed the boat on this. But, you know, if our politics actually does go down that road of like, we're just going to assert that anything that good happens to China is bad for us and vice versa. Uh, you're right. Like it's like, you're not going to solve climate change on that basis um, to say nothing of some of these like airier, but in some ways more, even more profound problems. I think that's all correct. I think, and like the politics of moving things from a zero sum conception to a positive someone is really hard. And to me, it's like one of the unending political tasks of liberalism, actually, like trying to see the world in, in positive some terms is hard because it, it's often I don't want to say it's unintuitive because like we all have positive some relations like like <laughs> marriages and friendships. And I mean, they're, they're in our life all the time, but we also have a lot of zero sum ones. And it's very natural to think about deals as zero sum. And we're taught to think about things as zero sum. I mean, a lot of our stories are seeing things as zero sum. Like in story, like in the mythos we grew up in, people defeat each other. They don't negotiate with each other. And like come like the like the villains and the heroes come up with a an, an outcome everybody can live a bit better with. Um like I, I read a lot of comic books and like one of the interesting things in comic books that has happened in the past couple of years is like a series in Marvel that has been very quietly subversive called the I think it's like the unbeatable scroll girl. And like the conceit of it is she's like constantly like figuring out positive sum endings with traditional Marvel villains as opposed to just destroying them and, and, and beating them to hell. And it's funny, but it's funny because like it's a send up of the genre. Um, it's it's funny because it's weird. Um, but anyway, I recommend the uh, the unbeatable scroll girl. But this this to me is like like it is the project of it is the project of politics to try to get people to see that like there is a better world for everyone. Um, it doesn't require them to like knock somebody else down. But that's probably a good place to to, to close the weeds here. Yeah, let's, uh, well, fun, fun times. So thanks, Ezra. Thanks as always to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and the weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? 
Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.